Much of Matthew's gospel is, ha, has a lot in common with Mark's gospel. And we looked at this when we looked at Mark and when we looked at Luke uh, in, in previous months. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot of material in common, some of it word for word. Uh, most scholars think that Matthew and Luke used Mark as one of their sources for writing their gospels. And that's why we see so much, uh, so much in parallel between the three. Those three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic gospels. Uh, that prefix sin, S-Y-N, meaning together. Together, uh, optic meaning view or perspective, the together person, the one perspective view on Christ. And so those three gospels kind of give uh, parallel versions of Jesus's life and ministry, death and resurrection. John, which we'll get to in a couple months, um, does not offer an alternate narrative to Jesus's life, um, but but a different perspective than Matthew, Mark and Luke. Now, more than any of the other Gospels, if I were to summarize Matthew in just a couple of short sentences, I would do it this way. That more than any of the other Gospels, Matthew is distinctively Jewish. It is the Jewish Gospel. Matthew's primary purpose in writing his Gospel is to show that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah and rightful king of the Jews. Matthew in his Gospel cites and includes no less, by my count, than 20 explicit Old Testament passages that are directly fulfilled in Jesus or by his ministry or in those that are ministering alongside him. 20 explicit references to, um, to Jesus fulfilling Old Testament scripture. And that does not count those, those Old Testament passages that are just barely referred to or just kind of hinted at or, or kind of in the background. These are explicit things. There's only 28 chapters in Matthew, and so that's almost on average one per chapter. Throughout uh, or through the process of Jesus' healing, teaching, death, and resurrection, he is constantly, Jesus is constantly demonstrating the clear difference between true and false discipleship. So Matthew says he is the king, and these are what his disciples look like. And so as a result, the two major themes that I see, uh, that I, that I have, have kind of honed in on for our study tonight in the Gospel of Matthew are these two. First, that Jesus is the promised Messiah king. Jesus is the promised Messiah King. And secondly, the Messiah wants only fully committed followers. The Messiah wants only fully committed followers. And we've talked about this recently in our Sunday morning series, but we're going to look at it um, in in sort of a broader scope here tonight. Now, if you were to sit down and and read the Gospel of Matthew in one sitting, which I recommend you do, um, which I recommend you do with every book of the Bible at some point in your life, um, devote some time to just sit down and read all the way through the whole thing, um, you'll be amazed at how differently um, you see, or maybe not how differently, but how much more richly you you view and and are able to enjoy um, God's Word in that way. But if you are to sit down and read Matthew all the way through, it might take you uh, somewhere in the area about maybe two to two and a half hours to read all the way through. If you just sit down and read through and don't bother to take copious notes or other things. Just sit down and enjoy it and read it through. it take you about that long. In the scope of redemption history, we've mentioned this with every book that we've studied, that God uh, throughout history is, is, uh, is playing out a narrative. And it is a narrative of, of redemption, of saving people from their sin. There are four major acts to God's story of redemption history. Creation, fall, Redemption and consummation. Creation occurs mostly in Genesis 1 and 2. The fall uh, occurs in Genesis 3 and then is played out over and over again in, in the lives of each and every individual that has ever been born. We all willingly sin against God. Redemption is God's act of sending a Savior, Jesus, to 
die for our place, uh, die in our place on the cross for our sins so that we can have forgiveness of our sins and return to a right relationship with God that we were created for in the beginning. And then consummation, the final act, is what we see all of history ultimately now moving to after Jesus, where God will one day make everything right. He will judge all people for their sin. Those who are found faithful and trusting in Christ for salvation will spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And those who are apart from God, who are separated from them in their own sin uh, and out of their open and willful rebellion against him will spend eternity in a place called hell, separated from God uh, in torment forever. As uh, as we look at Matthew in the sco- scope of redemption history, uh, I think it, it, it covers uh, the last two acts of those four, redemption and consummation. So if you have um, your, uh, your pen or pencil or lipstick or whatever you're writing with, circle or, or make a box around those two words, redemption and consummation. Because Matthew is explicitly about the Redeemer King, the one who's coming to save people. But there's much in Matthew about the kingdom of God, um, specifically in Matthew 13, where there are parables about the kingdom, and in Matthew 24 and 25, where Jesus is teaching about what, what is yet to come. Right? The things of the kingdom that are, that are yet to take place, that are yet to be fulfilled, that final day of judgment that is coming. Now, as you read Matthew, it helps to bear in mind the genre of Matthew. The genre of Matthew is gospel. This is a specifically biblical genre of literature. The gospel genre is unique among all of Scripture. It is part biography, part historical narrative, um, but in those, it's highly specialized in its focus. The Gospels all have the revelation of Jesus of Nazareth as the promised Jewish Messiah as their central theme and purpose. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John all have that at the center of of what they are saying and what they're doing. While each of the four Gospels differs in its perspective on Jesus' life and ministry, they all hold in common that he absolutely, most certainly was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise of this divine Savior King. And so when you are reading the Gospels in your own Uh, study time at home, ask yourself the following questions as you read the Gospels and you're trying to understand them. First, what is this text telling me about who Jesus is? Jesus is a central character of all of the Gospels. So we should be on every page and every verse asking ourselves, what does this text tell me about who Jesus is? Secondly, what is this text revealing to me about myself? We've asked this question about all of the books of the Bible that we've looked at so far. And spoiler alert, I'm going to ask you to ask yourself this question about every book of the Bible that you read. What is this text revealing to me about myself? What, when we, understanding that the Gospels were written for the early church to know, to have a, a history of Jesus' life and, and evidence to the, the claims that he made about himself, Right, knowing that that these gospels were written for the the early church, it was still they were still written for the church, and we are friends today, the church. The gospels are for us and are to us, and they are revealing things about Jesus. They're also revealing things about who we are. Jesus, all throughout Matthew, has confrontation with lots of different people who who think that they are particularly religious or right with God, and and he puts things to them a certain way so as to show them that they may not be. In fact, they often are not who they think they are. Those questions, those points that Jesus makes to those people in his gospel are not just for those scribes and Pharisees who have lost their way. They are questions that we need to hold up for ourselves as a mirror to our own soul to ask ourselves, who am I? Jesus, who am I? Where is my heart? What does my heart look like? What kind of person am I? How am I following you? Third and finally, ask yourself this question regularly. What does this text reveal about how I should be following Jesus? We've said before and we'll say it. We'll look at it again tonight. 
Matthew is unapologetically a, a gospel about discipleship and about following Jesus. And so at every point, uh, as you're reading through the gospel, be asking yourself, what is this text revealing to me about how I should be following Jesus? And am I doing that? What changes do I need to make? Where do I need to repent? Now, Matthew itself is structured in, in, in a pretty interesting way. There are in Matthew five what are called discourses. These are five extended teaching portions by Jesus in his gospel. And this is where they are. The first discourse is Matthew 5 through 7. This is what we commonly call the Sermon on the Mount. The second discourse happens in Matthew chapter 10. And that is where Jesus commissions his disciples to go on sort of a short-term mission trip, uh, preaching the kingdom, uh, healing the, the sick and the wounded, casting out demons, that sort of thing, doing much uh, of what he has already been doing in his ministry. The third discourse comes in Matthew chapter 13, where we have this series of kingdom parables, parables about what the kingdom of God is like. The fourth discourse is in Matthew chapter uh, 18. And this, in this discourse, Jesus is talking primarily about what the kingdom community looks like. What citizens of the kingdom of God, those who are trusting Jesus, what they look like, how they interact with each other, how they work and live uh, and interact with the world. The fifth discourse is in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. This is commonly called the Olivet Discourse because it takes place on the Mount of Olives where Jesus is giving this final sort of longer teaching on things that will come after his death and resurrection and before and leading up to the end of the age when God will uh, judge all things and, and consummate all of the universe to himself. So as you read through Matthew, just bear in mind those five discourses uh, and, and what is going on there and, and pay attention to what is happening before and after those discourses, uh, those extended teaching portions to see how they all kind of fit together. For instance, just as one example, in Matthew 5 through 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, what, what I have uh, commonly referred to as this ki- the Sermon on Kingdom Ethic, how people in the kingdom are to live. Right after that, We have uh, chapters 8 and 9 where Jesus goes out and is healing people and calling people to be disciples. We do well to look at the interplay between the Sermon on the Mount and the things that Jesus does afterward to see how they relate to each other. Is is what Jesus is teaching in 5 through 7 consistent with what he is doing in 8 and 9? Uh, my answer is uh, yes. Yes, it is consistent, right? But just know that going into it so that, because that will help you to, to read Matthew and to pull things out into greater perspective as you read through. Now, let's look at the Gospel of Matthew together under the two themes that we have already said uh, pervade this Gospel. First, Jesus is the promised Messiah King. Jesus is the promised Messiah King. And as the promised Messiah King, we see uh, that he is the Christ the son of David. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is how Matthew begins his gospel. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, the, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What is the point of Matthew in his gospel? To show us that Jesus is the Christ, is the son of David, the son of Abraham. That word Christ is just the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. And in Hebrew, Messiah is kind of a a general term on its own, an anointed one. Kings in the Old Testament were, were called Messiahs of sorts. They were anointed for service as a king of Israel. 
But by the time of Jesus's day, that term Messiah had taken on a far more uh, uh, intricate and complex definition or more specific definition. That word Messiah, the anointed one, came to be understood not just as any, any person who was anointed for a special purpose, but as the divinely commissioned king who would save and restore Israel. The Messiah then, as a king, had to be from Israel's royal line, the line of David. And only someone from the line of David could fulfill the expectations for a Messiah. And so as we read prophecies about, uh, uh, about the Messiah, about the Christ from Isaiah and from Zechariah and uh, the things that we see will happen in the, in the age of the Messiah in Joel um, and, and so on and so forth, we see that this person is a king, is referred to as a king, and as such must come from the royal line of David. Now, nine times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is called Son of David. More than any of the other Gospels. The other Gospels only refer to Jesus as Son of David. Well, John doesn't refer to him as Son of David at all. At, at all. Um, Mark and Luke do, but only three times each. Je- uh, Matthew refers to Jesus as the Son of David nine times. In fact, this is how Jesus is introduced to us here in Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. While Matthew introduces Jesus to us as the son of David, and in his genealogy demonstrates his descendancy from David, in Jesus' life and throughout his ministry and his interaction with people, very few people are actually astute enough to realize who Jesus is. Even though Matthew calls him the son of David, even even though we see that he has, through Jesus' genealogy, shown that he is a son of David, few people in Jesus' life actually recognize it. Most of them miss it entirely. Here's a sampling of some of the people who do realize Jesus is the son of David. First, in Matthew 9, 27, two blind beggars come to Jesus saying, have mercy on us, son of David. Matthew 15, verse 22, a Canaanite woman comes to him saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. A Canaanite woman is a woman not from Israel. She is not an ethnic Israelite. She is a Gentile, an outsider. In Matthew 20, verse 30, two more blind men saying the same thing as the first two blind men in 927 saying, have mercy on us, son of David. And then uh, in Matthew 21, verse 15, as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem the week before he is to, to be betrayed and crucified, children are shouting in the streets as Jesus rides in on the back of a colt of a, a donkey's colt saying, Hosanna to the son of David. I think it's quite interesting then that Jesus, who is the promised king, the promised Messiah would go unnoticed by those who are supposedly so keenly aware of the scriptures, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. And instead, he is noticed by children and foreigners and blind men. Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, and as such, he fulfills the scriptures. We've already referred to this a little bit, but let's look at it just a little bit more specifically. No less than 20 times in his gospel, we've already said, Matthew directly cites or refers to Old Testament scriptures that speak of and point to Jesus uh, uh, being the one who fulfills them. Just by way of example, there are five in just the first two chapters of Matthew alone, which speak about Jesus's birth and infancy. Five different times where something happens and Jesus is either in his birth or sometime in his early childhood where Matthew says this happened to fulfill the scriptures. Here's where they are. First of all, these are five of the prophecies that Jesus fulfills just in his birth and infancy. First in Matthew 1, 22 and 23, that he would be God with us, Emmanuel. 
Matthew quoting Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. In Matthew 2, verses 5 and 6, we see that he would be born in Bethlehem, citing Micah chapter 5, verse 2. In Matthew 2, 15, we see that he would come out of exile from Egypt. We know that Jesus and his family went to Egypt when his life was being threatened, and he came out of Egypt. There, Matthew citing Hosea chapter 2, 15 and 11, 1. In Matthew 2, 17 and 18, we see that the Messiah would have to escape murder at some point in his infancy, as uh, there is Matthew cites Jeremiah 31, 15. And in Matthew 2, 23, Jesus comes to rest, comes to live in Nazareth. And so the scriptures would be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Now here at Matthew 2, 23, even though Matthew says uh, so that uh, what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, uh, even though there is no specific Old Testament prophecy that says the Messiah would be uh, one from Nazareth, um, there is sort of a collaborative picture that arises from several of the prophets in the Old Testament and prophecies about the Messiah that indicate he would be of humble beginnings. Nazareth was a podunk, backwoods kind of town. And that he would be generally disregarded as an individual. People from Nazareth weren't highly liked. They didn't have status because of where they were from. Um, it would be like, uh, you know, if somebody came uh, to you and said, oh, well, don't you know who I am? I'm from Jal, New Mexico. Don't you know who I am? It's like, no, I don't. I'm sorry. I, don't, I didn't even know Jal was a place. It is a place. You can find it on the map. Right? Not anything against Jal. It's just Nazareth was as obscure as Jal or Thoreau, New Mexico. Now, once we see this in just the first two chapters of Matthew, these five fulfillments of Scripture, just in Jesus' birth and infancy, the other 15-plus references to Jesus fulfilling Scripture in Matthew pop off of the page to us like road signs, like mile markers on a, on a highway to a destination, right? And they just keep popping up all over the place, and we see them everywhere as we go through Matthew, as he shows us that Jesus is the one that the Old Testament promised. And as we read through Matthew, we begin to expect these signs, these fulfillments, and Matthew is sure to show them to us, not only to point out who Jesus is, but also to help us to read our Bibles better. Jesus is the center of God's work in history, and he's the center of the scriptures. And Matthew, like a master teacher, both draws us into the details of God's story to redeem us, and he tutors us in how we are to understand God's word. Some of my favorite teachers in in high school and in seminary were my history teachers. Why? Because they had a way... Of, of telling really compelling stories and showing why they were really important and helping me to understand why those things were important in history and why they're important today. Matthew is an expert historian. He tells Jesus' story in a, in a compelling way. He's not making up facts, but he's telling the facts in a really compelling way. And he's teaching us to see the signs in the Old Testament and to see how those things e- even work into and apply to our lives today. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He fulfills the scriptures. And then we see, particularly in Matthew chapter 12, that Jesus is the greater prophet, priest, and king. Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, Jesus is having a conversation there with the Pharisees, and they're getting on to his disciples about eating uh, heads of grain on the Sabbath as they're walking through a field. And Jesus um, uh, indicates to them that their judgment is inconsistent because they don't judge the priests who work in the temple on the Sabbath. And yet they're uh, calling condemnation on Jesus' disciples for, for 
you know, sustaining their health and livelihood on the Sabbath. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And then later in the same chapter, and we saw this just a couple of weeks ago, Jesus uh, casts an evil spirit out of a possessed man uh, so that he can now see and speak. He was made blind and and mute uh, by the oppression of this demon. And after he does that, the Pharisees start judging Jesus, saying, you cast out demons by the spirit of the prince of demons, by Beelzebub. Uh, and, and Jesus goes on to say, no, that's not exactly true. And then uh, the scene shifts and, um, and the Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus saying, hey, we want to, now we want to see a sign from you. Like as though they hadn't already seen the man who was possessed that is now not possessed. We want to see a sign from you. And Jesus says, you want to see a sign? I'll give you a sign. This is Matthew twelve thirty-eight and following. He says, I'll give you the sign of Jonah who was in the belly of the fish, great fish, three days and three nights. So will the Son of Man be in the belly of of the earth, in the heart of the earth, three days and three nights. He says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So something greater than the temple is here, something greater than Jonah is here. And in verse 42, the queen of the south, this is the queen of Sheba from 1 Kings 10, will, uh, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Matthew chapter 12 and Jesus making those three statements that he is the greater temple. He's greater than the temple. He's a greater priest. He's a greater prophet, greater than Jonah. He's a greater king, greater than Solomon is an incredibly important point for Matthew to make in his gospel because he's pulling back the curtain for us to see who Jesus really is as the Messiah. Just as the Old Testament scriptures stand to point us to Jesus, so also do the characters of the Old Testament and the institutions of the Old Testament stand as types and as shadows of the true thing which is to come. Think about what a shadow is. A shadow is what appears when, when light is shining directly on a real object. Uh, object. There are shadows behind me. Now, the shadows are not anything but but what I am but 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 what I am blocking of the light that is coming at me. Now they look like me. They're shaped like me, but their their proportions are different. Um, and a shadow can't think or talk or act on its own unless it belongs to uh, Peter Pan. That's a different story altogether, right? But our shadows don't do it. They look like us, but they aren't us. They, they bear some of the general shapes and characteristics of us, but they are not us. We are not our shadows. In the same way, the characters and the institutions of the Old Testament are like shadows of Jesus. They point us to what to expect. They point us to the real thing. In some ways, they look like the real thing, but in many ways, they're, not, they're, they're certainly not the real thing at all. But in looking at the shadow, we can, we can prepare ourselves to know what we will see when the real thing is among us. So when Jesus says something better than the temple is here, something better than Jonah is, is here, something greater than Solomon is here, we can look and we can say, yes, Jesus is better than the priests. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the kings. Jesus himself saying he's the better priest, prophet and king in Matthew 12. Uh, there he, he says that something, uh, uh, something greater than the temple, greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon is now here. So as the greater priest... He's, he's the one who gives only one sacrifice, which is his own life, and then sits down at the right hand of God, having perfectly performed his priestly duties. The priests in the Old Testament had to sacrifice or offer sacrifices regularly on an ongoing basis. Their work never stopped. Jesus performs one sacrifice and then sits down at the right hand of God. All of his priestly duties performed. He's the better prophet who has not just a word from God, but who is God among us, Emmanuel, teaching us in all wisdom how to know the Father. 
And he's the better king who brings his people victory over three things. He brings people victory over their greatest enemy, which is not Philistia, which is not Assyria, which is not Babylon. Israel's greatest enemy is sin. And he brings them into a permanent homeland, which is not Israel, but heaven. And he is a perfect king who leads with all humility and gentleness, never failing to be righteous in every way. Matthew chapter 11. Uh, Verses 28 and 29. This is what Jesus says about what kind of king he is. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's not just better than Solomon in, in, in an eternal sense. He's better than Solomon in every sense. He is not a king who puts burdens upon his people, but he's a king who lifts his people's burdens for them. Specifically, as the greater king, Jesus brings a better and eternal kingdom that is characterized by at least five different things in the Gospel of Matthew. First, the greater kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is bringing has as its citizens those who are poor in spirit and persecuted for their devotion to the king. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 and verse 10. Jesus says here, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who's the kingdom of heaven belong to? Those who are poor in spirit. Those who recognize that before a holy God, they have nothing to offer on their own. Verse 10. Blessed are those who, pers- who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who does the kingdom belong to? Those who are persecuted, judged, despised because of Jesus' name. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom that comes with uh, power from the Holy Spirit of God. Matthew chapter 12 verse 28. There where uh, Jesus has cast out this demon and the Pharisees are, are accusing him of casting out demons by the prince of demons. Uh, Jesus says that's a ridiculous accusation because if I cast him out by the prince of demons, then your sons, those Jewish exorcists, they're also doing it by the prince of demons. So you're condemning us all together. And he says uh, in verse 28 of chapter 12, but however, if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How does the kingdom of God come? comes in the power of the Holy Spirit. Third, it is a kingdom that is hidden from the self-righteous. It is a kingdom that is hidden from the self-righteous. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus begins telling all of these uh, parables about the kingdom, what the kingdom is like. And the disciples ask him, why do you speak in parables? And in Matthew 13, verse 13, this is what Jesus says. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Verse uh, 16, he goes on, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The kingdom of God is hidden from those people who assume they've got it all together, and is hidden from those who, who assume that they are right with God on their own. Consider then, when we look at the, at the end of Jesus' life, when he's hanging on the cross, And above him hangs a sign that says, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Consider the irony of of that statement and of the accusations by the people that Jesus sees when he is arrested. He encounters the Sanhedrin, and there the Sadducees ask him, are you the Christ? Are you the King of the Jews? And he says, you have said so. King Herod does the same, and Pilate does the same. 
and, and in a way to mock Jesus for calling himself or assuming that, that he could ever be the king of the Jews, they put this sign over his head on the cross that says, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. So as to mock him, so as to, to belittle him even more in the most embarrassing, even in the most embarrassing moment he would ever have in his life. And in their efforts to mock him, these people who think they know what is right and what is true unwittingly proclaim to the world what is actually true about Jesus. His kingdom is hidden from those people who are self-righteous and, and their self-righteousness betrays them at every moment. Fourth, it is a kingdom. The kingdom that he brings is a kingdom with great reward for the humble and for the trusting. Matthew chapter 18, verse 4. We read, the, uh, we read this and, and we're going to look at this passage here again in just a moment. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then Matthew chapter 19, verse 14. 13 and, and, uh, 13 and 14. The children were brought to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. The kingdom, it is, the kingdom is a kingdom with great reward for the humble and the trusting. Those who humble themselves in this life will be exalted in the kingdom. Those who are lowly and servants of all in this life will be the greatest of all in the kingdom. Those who humble themselves with trusting faith like that of a child in Jesus Right, will inherit the kingdom. Fifth and finally of these characteristics about Jesus' kingdom, we see that it is a kingdom that is built through God's grace and forgiveness. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, Jesus tells a parable of an unforgiving servant. There he says this, in verse, uh, beginning in verse 23. He says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring his master, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a, a significantly lower amount. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw that what had taken place, uh, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned the servant and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also, Jesus says, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's what the kingdom is like, Jesus says. The kingdom is built through God's grace and forgiveness, which he lavishes upon we who do not deserve it. And if we who have received God's grace and trusted God's grace can then not turn and give grace and forgiveness to others, we demonstrate that we've really not experienced forgiveness at all. That we really don't know what kingdom living is like at all. That we're not citizen kingdoms, uh, uh, kingdom citizens in the end. God's kingdom is one that is built through his grace and forgiveness. But Jesus is the Messiah King, fourth 
and, and finally on this point, is the one who delivers the world from their sins. First of all, as God in the flesh, Jesus has authority to forgive sins. And it's important that we see that. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, we have this uh, scenario or this, this event where Jesus was in this house teaching. And the house was crowded with people because they loved to hear Jesus teach and to preach. And as he's in there, uh, having a reputation for healing people who are sick and hurting and, and diseased and other things, these guys bring in their paralyzed friend into the house to see Jesus, that Jesus might heal them. They bring Jesus into the house, and Jesus, looking at the man, doesn't say, son, you are healed. Instead, in chapter 9, verse 2, he says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And then we read, behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blasphemy. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? What's easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? So as to assume that it is easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? The harder thing is to say, get up and walk. Sins are invisible. We don't see sins. We don't, we don't see the blackness of someone's heart when they're in sin. It's, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, whether you can actually forgive sins or not. It's much harder to tell a paralyzed man, get up and walk. And Jesus says in verse 6, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to, forgi- for, to forgive sins. He turns and says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home so that you can know that I can do the invisible, that I have authority to to do the invisible, which is to forgive sins. I'm going to do the visibly impossible right in front of your eyes. And the man rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and glorified God who had given such authority to men. So Jesus has authority to forgive sins and he demonstrates that. But secondly, Jesus' death on the cross and the spilling of his blood is his means of securing our eternal forgiveness. At the Last Supper in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29, Jesus says this. Uh, We read this. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There we read explicitly from Jesus' lips. He is saying, when my body is broken and my blood is spilled on that cross for you, that is the initiation of a new covenant, a new covenant of grace. What is this new covenant that Jesus is talking about? Is this a whole brand new thing that we've never seen before? No, I tell you, it's something we should be expecting. Jesus is referring, in speaking of the blood of the new covenant, uh, to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. There in Jeremiah 31, this Old Testament prophet, God is promising that he will return Israel from their captivity in Babylon and will give them a new covenant to live by. And there in Jeremiah 31, God says this in verses 31 through 34. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the old covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And we read in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, that the moment that Jesus died on the uh, the cross, the curtain of the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the outer room of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
signifying that the sin that had separated all mankind from the presence of God had now been paid for perfectly. That God has, as he said he would in Jeremiah 31, 33, forgiven their iniquity and remembered their sins no more. As a result, any person who submits their lives by faith to the grace of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus will have their sins forgiven and know their creator in truth again. Friend, do you know Jesus this way? Do you know Jesus this way? As the one who has come to make you right with God. He is, he is glorious as king. And, and he, he fulfills all of the promises that, that are about him. And not just to show off, but to do something good for us that we don't deserve. That's the definition of grace. Some have said grace, G-R-A-C-E, uh, can, can be communicated or defined as God's riches at Christ's expense. It's the riches of God's love to us in the death of his own son in our place. Now, Jesus, we've seen, is the, the true Messiah King. But secondly, as the true Messiah King, Jesus then wants, as a king rightly should, wants only fully committed followers. Look, the gospel of Matthew is an unapologetically discipleship-focused gospel. The fact that Jesus, who is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, that he is the Messiah King, demands a response from all people. We who are blessed as Americans to live in a democratic republic have the privilege to freely elect our leaders. And we do that every four, two years, six years, depending on their terms. We just had an election last fall. As such, we do not have a king to rule us. Instead, we have a president and 535 elected federal representatives and nine presidentially nominated and congressionally appointed Supreme Court justices. We are effectively, as Americans, a people-governed nation. And that is not a bad thing. But what we as Americans often miss about Jesus is that he is not a man running for spiritual office. He's not campaigning for influence or approval. He doesn't speak in 30-second sound bites, and he doesn't have a fancy slogan. Jesus isn't even coming to overthrow a rotten and despotic king. No, friends, Jesus comes as the one and only true king of the universe. And he comes not to save us from the tyranny of Satan, but rather to rescue us from the hell created by our own disobedience to him, the king. This good and mighty King Jesus, who gives his life to make citizens of his kingdom, commands one thing of those who wish to follow him. Full and absolute love and allegiance to the King of Kings. Jesus only wants one thing from you, your total and absolute love and devotion and allegiance to him, the King of Kings. Jesus calls several times throughout Matthew people to a relationship of discipleship, to follow him. And we see much about what it means to be a disciple throughout the Gospel of Matthew. For instance, First, we see that the call to be a disciple is a call to give everything. It's a call to give everything. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side, the other side of the the Sea of Galilee. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Just after the Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus is now amassing several uh, 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 people, large crowds who want to follow him. And here, two men from among those crowds express a desire to follow Jesus. And we see in Jesus' response that to follow him is to count the cost of discipleship. It means to be a follower of Jesus means being willing to go without certain comforts in this life for the joy of following the king, for the joy of being with the king. It means forsaking familial or friendly relationships that might hold you back or dissuade you from following the king. Remember, Jesus is not a politician looking for approval. He does not need your vote. He does not want your vote. He wants your life. He's the king who demands total loyalty. Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39. Jesus says this. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Jesus plainly says this. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus calls us to give everything for him. He calls us to give everything. More more than just comfort and relationships, though. More than just a place to lay our heads and family and friends to call on. Jesus commands those who would follow him to be ready even to die. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Sound familiar? For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. Sharp as a razor are Jesus's words here about what it means to follow him. The cross that he calls his disciples to pick up and carry is not a reference to some pocket sized trinket to be toyed with and looked at. The reference to a cross is not a little wooden thing that that we hang in a baptistry or over our beds or on our doors at home. The cross is an instrument of death in Jesus' day. It is the equivalent, the modern equivalent, uh, 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 or the ancient equivalent of an electric chair or a gas chamber or a hangman's noose or a firing squad line. Jesus is saying, pick up your instrument of death upon which you will die and walk behind me. It's the same instrument of death that the king himself will die upon as he gives his life to save sinners. His disciples, we who call ourselves by his name, Christians, are to do the same by dying to ourselves. By denying our own desires and agendas and faithfully striding in the footsteps of the king who has called us and who has died in our place. It is true that to follow Jesus will cost us much in this life. Jesus promises that. But we do well to consider what it will cost us to not follow him in the next life. To not be for the king is to be against the king. And to not follow him is to wage war with him. Jesus says that whoever would seek to spare his life 
uh, to spare himself discomfort in this life by not following him will in eternity lose his life to the unending separation and torment uh, that is in hell. In Jesus' own words, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Friend, is your soul secure with Jesus today? Do you know your, your, your eternal destiny and destination? Do you have confidence that you will be with Christ in eternity? Because he is the owner of your soul, not you. The call to discipleship is a call to give everything. But the call to discipleship is also a call to total humility. It's a call to total humility. In the same way that the most humble deed in all the universe was the Son of God taking on flesh to die for sinful people, the disciples and followers of the King, of the Son of God, are to be equally humble. Humility, then, is the quintessential kingdom characteristic. There's nothing that defines a citizen of the kingdom of God better than humility. We read in Matthew 18, 1 through 4, we we read that just a moment ago of the disciples wanting to know who will be greatest in the kingdom. To which Jesus answers, right? By taking a child and putting the child in front of them and saying, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So then there in the kingdom, in the footsteps of Jesus, there is no room for me, myself, and I. There's only room for him and for them. The kingdom perspective is one that only ever looks up to Christ and his glory and outward to others and how we may serve them as we follow Jesus. There is no me, there is no myself, there is no I in the kingdom. There is only Christ loving him and loving others as he has called us to do. Pride, especially religious pride, is deadly. It kills. But humility, Jesus shows us, brings life. Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, Jesus says this, whoever exalts himself in this life will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This statement comes as an introduction to seven woes that Jesus will pronounce upon the Pharisees who in their self-righteousness, in their religious pride, had exalted themselves above the people of Israel that they were supposed to be leading into the kingdom of God. Jesus denounces... um, The Pharisees, that in their pride, they have done seven things. First, they have forbidden entry to the kingdom to those who are not like them. Secondly, woe to the Pharisees because they have entrapped new converts to the kingdom with inordinate rules and laws that are not found in Scripture and are impossible to maintain. Third, woe to the scribes and Pharisees because they have elevated superficial things, physical things, above weightier spiritual realities. Woe to the Pharisees because they have neglected important parts of the Old Testament law, specifically justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Fifth, woe to you Pharisees because you filled yourselves with greed and self-indulgence rather than selflessness and care for the poor and the needy. Sixth, Jesus calls woe upon the Pharisees because they have put on airs to appear righteous and holy when inside their hearts are cold and dead and decrepit. Seventh, woe to the Pharisees because they have followed in the footsteps of their ancestors who killed the prophets of God and who will kill the Son of God himself. So then do not think so highly of yourself, Jesus says. Do not think so highly of your own abilities, especially your abilities to interpret the scriptures and to lead others because that was the fault that the Pharisees fell into. Rather, Jesus says, humble yourself before God. Humble yourself before the king and let him lift you up. 
Don't go to the trouble of exalting yourself over other people. Humble yourself and let the king exalt you. Finally, Jesus in calling only fully committed followers. In what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, we see this. That his call to follow him is both simple and glorious. You might think that to this point, the call to give up everything, the call to be humble is a burden impossible to bear. But Jesus' call to discipleship is really, in actuality, very simple and incredibly glorious. Look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. Here, Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, calls the first disciples. We read this. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, And Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. As though anybody else would be casting a net into the sea. I don't know. (laughs) For they were carpenters, and no. For they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called, by the way, um, Nikki, my wife, if we ever have a son, we're going to, at least his middle name will be Zebedee. Um, And he called them, verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. See what Jesus does in Matthew chapter nine, verse or Matthew chapter four, verse 19. He said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus called a discipleship to be a follower of his, to enter into the kingdom is strikingly simple. Two words, follow me, follow me. There are no half-hearted promises. There are no flattering words of a politician to woo these fishermen to go with Jesus. Just a simple and clear invitation. Follow me, follow me. To be a disciple of Jesus is as simple as that. To leave your nets and follow him. To leave your father and mother and follow him. It's that simple. But see also the glory of his invitation. See what he invites us into. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, you might not think much of this, but there is much in this for us as followers of Jesus. To follow Jesus is to be transformed by Jesus. He says, I will make you fishers of men. He will make uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John into something else, into something more than what they are on their own. And simultaneously, we see that to follow Jesus is to be like him. Now, follow me here. Jesus gives, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, his own purpose statement. He says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus himself is the greatest man fisher. His purpose is to give his life, to save, to win, to fish souls into the kingdom. And then so to follow Jesus is to be a man fisher like Jesus, made into a man fisher by the greatest fisher of men. To give one's life in service to the king by loving others with the good news of the king who died that we may live is what Jesus calls us into and what he equips us and turns, equips us for and what he turns us into. See how glorious it is to be a disciple of Jesus. We get to be made to be like the king. See also that even as Jesus' ministry begins with calling men to follow him, it ends with him commanding those who have followed him to make more followers. Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. 
Jesus came, said to them, this is after Jesus has been raised from the dead. This is right before he ascends to heaven, to the right hand of the Father. He calls the disciples together and he says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If there is ever any doubt that Jesus really is king of all, just read Matthew 28, 18, uh, I don't know, 30, 40, 70, 80, 100 times, however many you need to realize that Jesus has all authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus begins his earthly ministry by calling people to follow him, who he will then turn and make into fishers of men. And then he ends his earthly ministry before he ascends to the right hand of the Father by saying, Go, fish men. Go catch some men. Go win some souls. And not the ones that look like you, think like you, act like you, or live next to you. Go and make disciples, make followers of me of all nations, of all peoples around the globe, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Now, I feel like I've not done justice to the gospel of Matthew and only breaking it down to these two themes. Jesus is the, the perfect Messiah King, is a promised Messiah King. And, and seeing the call uh, to discipleship as is, is being that which is fully committed. There, there are several other things we could pull out in the gospel of Matthew, but these two themes pervade this gospel. And so as we think about those, let us then turn our attention to how we ought to respond to Christ as we read of him in the gospel of Matthew. First, receive Jesus as king. Receive him as king. Just as the crowds one week before his death received Jesus as king in Jerusalem, you do the same. Only don't do so with a fickle and a flailing and a failing heart. Receive Jesus as king in all humility and with full devotion. Know, friend, that he died on the cross for, your, for, for the forgiveness of your sins and was raised from the dead as a guarantee of your resurrection as well. And trust him with your life and your soul. Receive him as king of your soul today. Secondly, be a true follower of Jesus. Share the gospel and help the hurting. This is what Jesus did. All throughout his ministry, two things. He proclaimed the kingdom and he bound up the wounds of the hurting and the sick. Church, this is our call as well, to proclaim the gospel and to bind up the wounds of the hurting and the sick. Third and finally, how do we respond to Jesus as king of all, as the one that we follow? We see this, that Jesus' mission to save sinners is the mission of the church. His mission to save sinners is the mission of the church. We ourselves do not save people from sin, okay? There's nothing that Stephen can do to bring someone into the kingdom, other than proclaim the kingdom and trust the rest with God. The decision to enter the kingdom is a decision that each and every individual must make when confronted with the news that Jesus is king. So we ourselves don't save people from sin, but what we do is we point people to Jesus, the king who died for us, who rose from the dead, and we come alongside them as they give their all to grow in their faith in the Savior King as fully committed followers of Jesus. That's our mission church, to make disciples as Jesus has called us to make disciples.